Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I am your host, Grayson Prolty. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Karina Ricks, Director, Department of Mobility Infrastructure, City of Pittsburgh. In one of the final interviews before leaving her role as the inaugural director of the City of Pittsburgh's Department of Mobility and Infrastructure, I sat down with Karina Ricks to discuss the launch of Move PGH and the city's plans to improve mobility, spur economic growth, and position Pittsburgh as a model city of the future. Enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Karina. Thank you, Grayson. Great to be here. I'm super excited to have you here because, first of all, Pittsburgh is an incredible city that's doing really great things, and it's also a city that's innovating to become the city of the future. So I can't wait for you to share that incredible story and the role that you play in making that happen. As I look at the city of Pittsburgh, as I mentioned, I see all this really cool innovation happening. I'd love to know, why was the Department of Mobility and Infrastructure created? You know, Pittsburgh is is an old city. We've got some really great legacy infrastructure, and that means that that infrastructure requires a lot of care and feeding to maintain it. We have over 1,200 miles of streets within the, the rather compact 52 square miles of our city, but we're also a city of innovation, as you mentioned. So there's a lot of new technology, new ideas, new innovations that are happening here in the city. And so we really needed a department that could both keep up sort of the the care and feeding and maintenance of this legacy infrastructure while also really thinking about what is what is the future and what kind of service does that infrastructure need to provide to the city, not only in the next two or three years, but the next 50 and 100 years. So the Department of Mobility and Infrastructure was formed to be able to think both about the engineering of those assets and and keeping them in a good state of repair, but also the operation of them as a smart city, as an equitable city, as a city of opportunity, and then also to bring in the planning and policy and partnerships aspect of things into this new department. So it really is a soup to nuts organization more than just a maintenance organization, which is what previously existed. When you're looking to the future of the infrastructure, is sensors playing a big part in your thinking of how can the city use sensors if there's a pothole or there's a a vehicle on a sidewalk that shouldn't be there or intersections? Are you actively looking at how do you deploy sensors for the benefit of the community to make the infrastructure operate better? So we, we do try and deploy data to the extent possible in the way that we respond to our services. So that's working. We have an Office of Innovation and Performance, which is a separate department of the city that's really there to be the data scientists of the city. As far as sensors go, we're, we're building that system that will be able to kind of be a plug and play, if you will, system. So right now, we are expanding our smart traffic signals. So we have about 50 right now. We have, we have 660 signalized intersections. About 50 of them are adaptive uh, traffic signals, meaning that they use edge computing. They have all of these uh, other bells and whistles that enable them to be very nimble. They also have fiber communication that goes to those signals that allows that to happen. As we expand that system to cover about a third of our total signals in the next just a few years now, we're in engineering design now, that will also provide a fiber backhaul to those signals that can serve multiple other purposes should we choose to employ that. At the same time, we're also in the course of of modernizing our street lights 
And so we have about 45,000 streetlights around the city. And again, trying to, even though the focus there is on energy efficiency and really, really getting those gains of energy efficiency from an LED streetlight conversion, we also are thinking about how do these streetlights play a role in 5G cellular communications? How do they play a role as future platforms for sensors and monitoring of the public realm? So we're leaning into that even while we're using the data that we have available to us today. With the fiber backhaul, the city, you'll be able to partner with the private sector and you'll be able to build really cool, innovative things. And you could put a really robust Wi-Fi network for public use. You can add, add more centers. You can... Who knows what's going to be developed next as you look to expand it. It's going to be really interesting once you have that infrastructure backbone that you discussed earlier. As you start to increase the traffic signals throughout the city, the adaptive, um, right now you said you have 50. Are you seeing a performance and a decrease in terms of traffic, um, happiness of drivers that are operating in the city to say, hey, Karina, this was cool. You were able to save me two minutes on my trip. Well, there's nothing that makes drivers happier than encountering a traffic signal that usually really adds delight to the trip. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> the uh, the 50 that we've installed, we have seen in the study that we did, which was a partnership with Carnegie Mellon University, we did find that traffic moved a notable amount more smoothly and more efficiently on that corridor where we implemented the adaptive traffic controls. But drivers are only one mode on the street of any city. And actually, you know, a, a huge number of trips are made by non-auto modes. It's people going to and from transit vehicles. It's transit vehicles traveling along the same corridor, pedestrians going to shops and schools in that area, people on bicycles, people on micromobility devices. So what this next generation of traffic signals that we're putting in we sort of had, we, we are a test bed. We pride ourselves in being an innovation test bed. And so we sort of got, you know, generation one in this initial deployment that we put out there. Um, we've continued to work with that company and the researchers at Carnegie Mellon University to continue to improve upon that signal technology. And, you know, the, the industry is sort of at generation five now compared to what that original deployment was. And that's important because what we've been insisting on is it can't just be about moving motorists along a street. That can't be what a quote-unquote smart signal is focused on. It needs to be about addressing those policy priorities that you have for your transportation and mobility system. The policy priorities that we have are around equity, good climate performance, access to opportunity, and of course, safety. So now with this, you know, sixth generation of smart signals that, that we'll be deploying, we'll be able to not only move motorists swiftly along the corridor, but we'll also be able to introduce policy priorities around prioritizing pedestrians, facilitating the movement of transit on these corridors, timing signals to address bicycle progression, Whatever it is that we want to, you know, minimizing the amount of freight delays. So if there are large trucks that are that are idling and, and, and adding emissions to our area, we can prioritize just by, by changing sort of the policy rubric that we're applying to these signals. You're taking into account 
all of the aspects of a city from delivery to pedestrian to bicycles to cars an example you there's a, an area of town where a lot of individuals work on one side of the road but yet they go to lunch on the other side of the road are you able to work and say okay we know between 12 and one o'clock a lot of individuals are going to cross the road to go to lunch and to program there to favor the pedestrians just based on the historical traffic pattern we can, but what's, what is what is unique about adaptive traffic controls and the sort of edge com- computing and sensing that's happening is that there really is no pre-timed timing scenario that's being applied to these signals. So the conventional way that the traffic signals work is that, you know, we know that the mainline corridor during rush hour needs to have, you know, the most time on the signal, but we always need to account for some time for these side streets to enter in, and it just runs on that kind of signal timing. There might be something happening that the Steelers win the Super Bowl or or something else happens spontaneously and nobody is traveling because everyone is celebrating, you know, in their living room or in the downtown. And therefore, we don't need that signal doesn't need to run on that expected cycle that it that would be there, it might be that now it needs to sense and prioritize the pedestrians who want to stream across the street to celebrate with each other this great victory. And and so it can switch dynamically to now really sense what these other modes of that need to be accommodated at that intersection are. So um, but we can also change that policy guidance temporally, right? So we can say in general we want the signals to just generally optimize mobility as they move around that corridor. So nobody by any mode has to wait too long. We kind of balance it out, move everybody along through these intersections. And that's sort of the default condition. But we might also say on late night hours from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m., we really want to move the truck traffic. We don't want trucks to have to stop and apply their brakes at all. So during those overnight hours, don't worry about optimizing it. If you sense, if you see, quote unquote, see a truck, time those signals up and down the corridor to move that truck smoothly along in that corridor. There may be another time like lunch hour where we say we don't really care about how long the cars have to wait. We really want or, or when the students are changing classes in our, in our main campus areas, we don't really care how long the cars are, are waiting. We want to clear the student traffic, the pedestrian traffic at these times. So that's that policy rule that we can apply to different times of the day as to when we're going to favor a particular mode or another. It's a fully optimized experience. You're, you're doing all these really cool things in the city. When you stepped into the role as director, did you, did you say, wait a second, I'm going to have like this Willy Wonka laboratory of policy and innovation to be able to build things? Is that what you thought when you were stepping into the role? Yeah, I mean, I came to Pittsburgh from Washington, D.C. because Pittsburgh was at the time. So I arrived here in 2017. And if we all think back to those ancient days of 2017, what we heard in those years was autonomous vehicles, level four autonomy would be commercially available by 2020 and Ford and GM and everyone was going to be selling these to you and we'd have this this uh, you know tremendous connected um, transportation system and everything would be running um, very smoothly and, and delivering the safety that's promised. Pittsburgh was at the heart of that. Pittsburgh was where all of that was happening. Uber had just announced their autonomous testing here in this city. Quickly on the heels of that announcement came three more companies that came to begin their testing and development here in Pittsburgh and 
that's really what I wanted to see. I wanted to be a part of that and, and definitely got, got all of that and more being here and seeing what's happening in the industry. How is that technology evolving? How is that technology not evolving? It's we're 2021 and, and I still can't buy my fully autonomous uh, robot car today, but, but it is advancing. We are making progress. You know, I, I, I experienced a lot more as well. I came to the city in the very next year, 2018, Pittsburgh saw historic rains as a result of, of climate change. And I did not expect to be standing at the foot of a hill watching a slow-moving landslide destroy a home and, and one of our streets. So also have had to learn about how do we adapt to climate change and how do, what is the role of a transportation agency in really dealing with that because that's, that's where we are now today as well. You're, you're looking at all modes of transportation. And one of the coolest things that you've done recently and the department has done is the Move PGH program. Really smart, but I want to give you a lot of credit because you did one of the coolest things I've seen a city do. You introduced the program with a local artist named Benji. You're tapping into the local culture of the city, made this really cool music video explaining all of the different ways that modes of transportation be used in the city. But instead of this boring, this is how you use this. It was fun. It was cultural. It was happy. Can you talk about that program? And I'd love to know, how did you get Benji to do it? Uh, well, I think Benji probably found himself somewhat surprised <laughs> to be writing a hip hop song about scooters and zip cars and, and other kinds of things too. But he was great to work with. He's a very, very talented artist originating from here in Pittsburgh. So I think he was really happy to have the opportunity to give something back to his community as well. And we were very happy to have him produce something that that is a lot of fun. It's, it's, uh, it's great. So, But the Move PGH program is really... You know, it came from the premise that mobility as a service is really growing across the country where you don't need to own your own mobility device. So you don't need to be a, a scooter owner or a car owner or even necessarily a bike owner. But there can be services that can make those devices available to meet your mobility needs. As it's evolved to date, though, for the most part, these are all separate services that are there. And it, the onus is really on the user. It requires a really high level of sort of mobility literacy or app literacy to navigate a mobility market that has a number of different services provided by a number of different providers. And so what we wanted to do with Move PGH was to, to make it easier on the user to move across the different services, right? It's a mobility as a disservice if they can't move between them or if you're just trying to capture your own customer in your own mode, but not really giving that traveler access to the whole array of, of mobility services. So we put out a, an RFP. We didn't really know what we were doing at the time, but we just sent it out to the mobility as a service industry and said, dear industry, we'd like you to self-organize into a collective where you're willing to really work with each other across the different kinds of modes and services that you provide, that you will go into a shared platform so that the user doesn't need to have 14 different apps on their phone, that they can have one that they can go into, that you'll work with us toward this holy grail of fare integration where you can pay one fare and use a number of different services to, to get to the place that you're going to. And, and we, you know, spin 
was the company that prevailed in that competitive process. They came with a very diverse group. They've been amazing partners to us through this, very patient partners, because while we thought we would be launching six months after selecting a partner, it actually took us two years to get everything together. So they they were very patient and helpful to us in, in, in doing that. But what we've been able to do with Move PGH now is make shared cars and shared scooters and transit and bike share and carpooling and real-time transit information and electric charging all available in a single program. So it, it, it is pretty cool. The programs overcome the biggest hurdle that the electric vehicle industry is facing. You're going to go to charge your vehicle, charge point, electrify America, EV box. You're like, well, I have to download another app. You said, wait a second. We know that doesn't work. Consumers don't like that. They, they get frustrated and go somewhere else and say, wait a second, you have to work on a seamless app and you integrated the most important part, a seamless payment experience. So you don't have to take out your credit card or your phone and tap this device, tap that device. With this experience that is completely frictionless, are you seeing a large uptick from the from the residents and visitors to the city where, hey, this is fun, I can get around it. I don't have to take this card out or download this app. I can just experience the great city of Pittsburgh and have a fun time while doing it? Well, full disclosure, we are still sort of building the plane as we're flying it. So we don't have all of the, the services in that single app just yet. They're at different kind of places and they're app integration trajectory. But we do have a few of them in there. And yeah, we are seeing, you know, we we suspected that this would be a good and helpful um, service. We have now, we are about two and a half months after initial launch. And we've seen more than 180,000 trips taken through this. It just seems to keep growing exponentially every time I ask, you know, what are, what are we up to now? you know, we're suddenly 30,000 more trips than than when I asked three days ago. So it is a clear demonstration of unmet demand. It's a clear demonstration that people do like joyful, easy ways to travel. One of the critiques, in fact, that we get, particularly with the with the bikes and scooters being offered there in mopeds, one of the critiques, people say, well, oh, but I just see people joy riding with them. And and I always think, is that so wrong to have joy when you travel? What joy? You want (laughs) happiness. You're you're in this role and you're walking around the city or you're riding a bike and you see somebody on the program with a giant smile on their face. That's a huge win. That's what you want. Happiness. The world needs more happiness. And if somebody wants to take a joyful ride, God bless. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, and, and clearly there are not uh, 180,000 joy rides happening. I would suspect that, you know, many of those are just people trying to get that last mile to the high frequency transit route or people, you know, running late for their doctor's appointment or their, you know, job interview or, you know, whatever it might be. But we definitely have seen great utility. We've seen, and one of the most important principles for us and why we really were, you know, pushing this out and making sure that it covered the entire city was we have one in five Pittsburghers that don't have access to an automobile. They just don't own one. It's not an option. For some, it's a choice. They, they want to save the planet or, 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 you know, just that's not their value to have a, a car. But for most of them, it's because they, they are not financially in a position where they can do that. And that has been a real obstacle and a real hindrance to them being able to get to quality opportunities in life. 
And so we wanted to make sure that when we set this system up, that it covered every corner of the city, that we made the services available at a price point that could be achievable uh, by people of, of various means. And the trips that we're seeing and the routes that we're seeing taken and the origins and destinations, we are seeing tremendous use in some of our neighborhoods that have been historically disconnected and historically underinvested. And that is just a, is tremendously validating to see that we actually are opening up opportunities for these individuals to, to get to that next place. So again, the, the mission of the, the Department of Mobility and Infrastructure is to provide the physical mobility necessary for the economic mobility of the people of Pittsburgh. And, and in this program, I can say uh, we do seem to be really doing that. You're having a positive impact on society. You're having a positive impact on their lives. I, we talk about this a lot internally. You have the ability to, for them to take their child to a better library or to experience it. Pittsburgh has great cultural institutions to go to the Andy Warhol Museum or something that could expose a child to the great culture that there is in Pittsburgh without the car. Well, now you have a solution. That demographic is sometimes hard to, hard to reach, hard to build trust with. Are there outreach programs through like a boys and girls club or local individuals in the community that are respected to say, hey, this is a really great solution that can help you and it's something that's affordable? Yeah, well, in combination with with setting up the Move PGH program and in our partnership with, with SPIN, the city and SPIN and the other partners are doing a demonstration of guaranteed basic mobility. So what this does is there's so many individuals in our city to get a bus pass uh, or a transit pass for a month is just under $100. Once you buy that pass, you have unlimited use of of the buses at any time of day, whenever you want, wherever you want. But for a lot of households, scraping together enough money to buy a $100 bus pass is, is quite a feat. If they are able to scrape that money up, they probably don't have anything left if they miss their bus. But that bus is the one and only mode that they have available to them. And there's no resiliency. They, they really experience deep mobility insecurity, even if they have access to these different modes that we're offering. So the, the guaranteed basic mobility demonstration, we are, uh, we have 50 individuals that will be given a monthly subscription to the whole array of different mobility services. So they'll get all-you-can-eat transit and all-you-can-eat bike share and all-you'll-want-to-eat e-scooter usage. You'll get a good allotment of moped use if you're a licensed driver, a good allotment of, of car share use if you want that, and then carpooling is another option that's available through there if that works. But we'll set them up with all of that for a single set fee, which is uh, right now we're, we're, we're looking at it being just $5 a week so that there's a little bit of skin in the game, but not n- nothing too heroic um, that you need to come to. But for that, we'll unlock all of these different mobility options and you and address that mobility insecurity question. So you'll be able, if you need to travel, you'll have the means to travel. And you know, if you miss the bus, don't worry, we've got a plan B and a plan C available for you. And you don't have to worry financially about you know, spending more money to to take that additional trip that you that you is not part of the subscription, which is the bus pass that you already have. We also have ride coaches through a local community organization here, who are people from that very same community 
who are sort of trusted partners to your point. So, you know, a, a big hindrance to using cost is one hindrance to using these different mobility modes. But honestly, feeling foolish and stupid is another hindrance and an obstacle to using them. I've come across so many people who won't take the bus because they don't know how to, to pull the little cord to signal when, when it's their stop and they want to get off. So they don't take the bus. So the ride coaches will help people get over that insecurity. It's, again, a safe person from your own community who's had similar life experiences as you have that you don't have to feel dumb if you don't know how to park the scooter or if you don't know how to open the gas tank on a shared car or if you don't know um, you know, how to charge um, one of these devices. So someone that they can call, get a little bit of help from, get back on their way. If something goes wrong, you know, they ran over time uh, on their their time allotment to use the scooter, that it's someone that they can immediately call and say, just this thing happened. It happens in my life. You know how it is. Uh, and they can do that. So we think that that's really also going to be a really important piece of success to this program is building that trust. Because as you say, this is a community that has been, you know, historically disenfranchised and, and government has failed them on many fronts. So building back that trust is really an important component of this program. You're empowering the individual. You're taking away the fear, the, f- the fear of being lost, the fear of, am I doing this right? Is somebody going to make fun of me? Am I going to break this? You're eliminating all that fear and empowering an individual. And I'm like, okay, if this individual comes over, the fear says, well, I could park that school. This was cool. I learned this and hey, I learned how to ride the bus. Does that inspire them next to say, I'm going to take on another challenge? Or I'm going to push myself to learn a new skill. You're setting somebody up for success, not just in mobility, but long-term success by giving them, you're pushing them to get over that first little hurdle. Wow, I did this. I could do something else. It's going to be special. <laughs> I hope so. We're, we're focused on that one step, but uh, of course, it'd be, it would be great. I heard actually from our community partner this morning, you know, just things that you just don't don't think about if this is not your lived experience. And she said, oh, you know, she was talking to to one of the participants in this demonstration program. And they said, oh, sure, sure. I would love to, you know, be a part of that, not only because I get, you know, this this very valuable package of, of transportation goods, but she said, I've always wanted to learn to ride a bicycle. I've never ridden a bicycle and I, I will be a participant in this program just so that I can learn to ride a bike because that's one of those services that we offer. And I thought, wow, that I had not thought of that as being like one of the benefits of this, but sure. Great. You know, and they're modeling it of course, for, you know, for their kids and for the other generation. And that's, that's what this is about too, is really demonstrating that like, if we can take away some of this just fundamental insecurity that you have, things that should be a human right, right? Transportation should be a human right that you can get to those critical destinations that you need to get to. It's not a privilege. If we've set our land uses up in this way that requires travel by a mode other than your two feet, we owe it to our residents to give them an affordable means to get to those destinations. And that's what we're doing. And if we can do that, we are setting them up for success as to wherever they want to take it from there. Some people, sorry to just, you know, one more point is some people say, well, oh, but you're so anti-car, you know, and, and that's, that's absolutely not correct. What we're setting people, I, I am, I am mode agnostic to this, but what I do feel is that we can't assume that everyone has a car. 
And if we set these participants in our guaranteed basic mobility program up for success, and they're able to climb the economic ladder, and they're able to become auto owners, that's great. I have nothing against that, you know, but we've gotten them to that point where that becomes a choice for them instead of consigning them to this lower level that they're only restricted to the things that they can get to on foot or by transit. Owning a car is expensive. You know, maintenance, car pay- car payment, and insurance. Well, it's not cheap to own a car and it's going to sit most of the time. I want to go back to bikes. You said like an older individual learning to ride a bike that think, and I'm thinking about on a Sunday afternoon or Saturday, they can go out as a family with their children. It's like they can have this great experience to maybe go to a park and have a picnic and mom or dad's riding the bike. All right, you did it. You did it. And think about from a parent's perspective, how proud that's going to make them feel. My kids are so proud of me that I'm riding a bike. Okay, maybe we'll go a mile this time because I'm a little nervous. Okay, next time let's go two miles and let's go explore this part of the city or go explore that part of the city. That's going to become fun. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It, it just is. And it's, and transportation is, again, I'm all for the joy ride. Follow the laws, do it responsibly, but there's too little there's too little joy and happiness in this world anyway. I'm certainly not going to deny people that. Is all this that you're working on, will this tie into the 2070 plan that the city's currently working on? Yeah, so the 2070 plan, we it, we are just releasing that in fact today at a press release. And so the 2070 plan is, you know, it is a 50-year plan. Why is it a 50-year plan? Because People, it's so hard for us to believe in audacious things, right? We're, we, we are so concerned about the world as we know it right now that it's hard to believe that it can be really profoundly different. But I will tell you, 50 years ago, the city of Pittsburgh had scores of miles of trolleys that operated around this city. If you talk to an a not so old Pittsburgher, but they will talk about, oh, I remember when I used to take the trolley downtown to get this or that. It was, they crisscrossed the city. They provided connectivity all across it. 50 years ago, Pittsburgh was the river of steel. We There were steel plants all up and down the three rivers here in this region. Um, today, most of those are quieted and gone. If you had asked an individual 50 years ago what Pittsburgh would be 50 years uh, from then, they would not have described a city where we have a tremendous number of crashes that occur with, with pedestrians and bicycles. They wouldn't have described a city where there's profound delays going in and out of the tunnels. They maybe wouldn't have described a city where the, the streets would get flooded. We'd have 100-year floods every uh, seven years here, but that's what's happening today. So we need to, we need to look forward with audacity to, to 50 years from now and start laying that groundwork and start saying we things will be different. They always have been. And we need to start thinking about and managing and, and giving direction and purpose to that change so that it's not just the technologists setting things loose in the world, but it's the public and public policymakers putting guide rails on them to help us build toward the future that we want. The future that we want is one where we are able to successfully address climate change, where we are able to have mobility resiliency, that there is flexibility in getting where you're going, where we do have connected communities, even though we have hills and, and rivers and things that present natural boundaries in our city, that we're able to use technology, whether it's vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, whether it's aerial gondolas, 
uh, aerial ropeway transit. But we need to be audacious. We need to be bold by putting things down. Plans have power. And by putting down that vision and saying this is a city that we want to be and painting a picture of an alternative that's different than it is today, we can really start to achieve that. So yeah, the 50-year vision plan includes a lot of personal mobility, like what Move PGH provides. It is built around a core of high-quality transit because nothing is more efficient than public mass transit and moving large quantities of people significant distances. And then, and then it talks about how we can use technology for good and how we can kind of direct that toward those public objectives that we have as a city, those values that we have as a city. 50 years ago, trolleys were everywhere in downtown Pittsburgh. 50 years from now, how do you envision the future of Pittsburgh will look as it relates to mobility? Will it be autonomous trolleys? Will, can you shed some light on that? It may be. I can tell you one thing for sure is that there's there will still be pedestrians and we need to we need to plan on that and respect that and and start uh, start now to build a better pedestrian network. There will most certainly be micromobility. Micromobility includes bicycles, which have been around for, you know, a good while so far. And they I expect that they'll still be available uh, then, but they might have a little bit of electric power to help you get up some of Pittsburgh's hills. And mass transit has always served. Their cities don't exist without mass transit. It's not possible to get that level of economic productivity that you have in these in these denser urban centers without efficient, quality, dignified public mass transit. And so I do think the future of Pittsburgh is one in which we have significantly more mass transit service and that mass transit maybe takes a number of different forms. It might not just be trolleys and and you know 40-foot buses, but it could be it could be connected smaller shuttles that are able to to operate in a trained um, fashion during high peak periods and and maybe operate singly in in lower demand times. It it may include aerial ropeway transit. It may include waterborne transit. I don't know what those forms um, will be. Autonomy will certainly play a role. Will they be fully autonomous? I don't know. Perhaps, but but perhaps not. But they will at least be able to augment the driver and increase safety and improve sort of the visibility of these complex urban streets that we have. And again, to protect the most vulnerable street users, which is which is critically important. And I hope in 50 years, we will achieve that goal of no traffic deaths on our streets. We all want no, no traffic deaths. Bikes will definitely play a large role in this. And your neighboring state in Ohio, the Wright brothers started with a bike shop and that was over a hundred years ago when they went from bikes to planes. And bikes will continue to play a large role. Karina, this has been an insightful conversation. You've shined an extremely positive light on the city of Pittsburgh. Putting this all together as we wrap up, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? Because to me, you said Pittsburgh's the home of innovation, but we're going to do innovation right in a way that benefits society and the residents of our city. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Pittsburgh has a, a really important role to play in being sort of you know, we, we are a unique city. Pittsburgh is a, is a city of neighbors. We are the home of Mr. Rogers. We are a very inclusive place, or at least we strive to be a very inclusive and welcoming place. But it was told to me when I first moved here, you know, Pittsburgh is a place that's small enough to get things done, 
but big enough that it matters when we do. And I think that that's true. So we're small enough that we can really work together collaboratively with the different people in our region, that we can work with the rural communities, we can work with the urban communities, we can work with the technology innovators, we can work with the, with the traditionalists and the labor unions here, and we can figure it out. And we can play that really important role of, of being that translator to other cities to help scale the, the positive evolution of innovation here that serves those public goods so that it really can be a benefit to, to other places around the country. So it's been, it's been a, such an amazing honor to be here in the city of Pittsburgh. Tremendous leadership, tremendous people, tremendous partners, philanthropic community and industry and, and institutions all. But it is, a, it is a very special place. So appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. It's a special place, and the special individual, Mr. Rogers, who had an incredible impact on society and the, and the hard conversations that he had when nobody else was willing to have him. Mr. Rogers, we miss you, and I got to say this, won't you be my neighbor? The city of Pittsburgh <laughs> is a great city. Today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, and the future is the city of Pittsburgh. Karina Ricks, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to tune in next week when we speak with Mark Moore about all things aerospace, the launch of his new startup, Whisper Aero, and the need to harness the power of air more cleanly, efficiently, and quietly than ever before. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.